Okay, here to review the uh, the Sunday papers are uh, broadcaster and uh, GP uh, Kira Kelly, uh, Irish Examiner uh, columnist and public affairs consultant Jared Howland, and uh, economics writer, former group business editor of independent newspapers. Indeed, my one-time boss Brendan Keenan uh, is uh, also here. That was a fair few years ago. In fairness, Brendan, where did I go wrong? <laughs> yeah. um, thanks for coming into us. Listen, let's let's start with sort of budget uh, fever and uh, Brendan that. That story about the government sort of putting all its eggs into the USC basket. The USC, it's a funny one. It's become this hated tax. But is there an element of be careful for what you wish for if you want to get rid of USC? Because the money has to come from somewhere. The money has to come from somewhere. But I think another danger is uh, the structure of the tax system. Uh, the Irish tax system before the crash, uh, the income tax system was terribly narrow. Uh, two bands, lots of reliefs. Uh, the reason I people paying no tax at all exactly and say. that's the reason USC is so unpopular that it hit a lot of people who were paying little or no tax before and it's a kind of mantra of Irish politics uh, that below a certain level of income you shouldn't be in the tax net this famous tax net I thought it was some kind of uh, weapon and the fact is that when you take benefits into account particularly child benefit about the bottom third of the Irish uh, workforce makes no contribution to the running of the state, or did before USC, and still very small. So, um, Two ways of looking at that. One says, well, that's a very fair system. The other way says, well, everybody should, ha- should pay something, a small amount. They should have an investment in, in the state. And also, just the financial reality, if you've a third of people not paying any tax at all, um, well, then you've got to squeeze the other two thirds. Exactly. There are two ways of looking at it, except, you know, it's never uh, discussed. It's taken as a mantra that somehow this is the right approach. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's at, the, at one point, and, and the Sunday Business Post gives these figures, at, at one point, um, the income tax take during the bubble fell to 27% of, of revenue, right? It's now 42% of tax revenue, and that would include uh, USC. And you have to ask, is that too low a figure to run what we demand, a very sophisticated, modern uh, welfare system? So uh, I think there is a, a danger, not only the loss of revenue, but they'll probably calculate that quite well, that we're reverting to a tax system which clearly wasn't able to support Ah, the kind of country we want without the windfall taxes that we were getting from the property bubble. Jared mm. uh, Helen, would you would you go along with that? Are we go, are we in danger of repeating the mistakes of the past? Oh yeah, no, that horse has been galloping away for about a year or more now. Uh, I mean, it is uh, ironic that on the one hand, the government's overarching narrative is to the past we will never go back, and if you re-elect us, you can be sure of that. On the other hand, the when you boil down their policies and you disaggregate them uh, one by one, uh, what they are doing is deeply reminiscent of the past they swear we will never return to, both in terms of um, you know, giving out goodies before elections, both in terms of uh, carving out, uh, as Brendan has explained, the bottom of, of the tax base, uh, for example, in relation to property tax, which was, uh, while the overall figures are small in terms of, of the economy generally, it's significant widening of the tax base, and yet extraordinary coalitions that disagree vociferously on almost everything can come together in local authority after local authority to reduce 
the property tax by the maximum allowed before they go out to vociferously protest about the services that are being reduced because the income is not available I mean, the, because they just reduced the only, There tax. is only one word for that. Hypocrisy. It? Yeah. I mean, and it's also a fairness to politicians, uh, lest they be overly criticised. It's also, of course, giving to people what they want so that they can again complain bitterly about having been delivered what they demanded. That's a pretty cynical way of looking at it. It is very cynical. My my local uh, county council has just uh, raised our property tax by 15%, even though they were given permission to... uh, Lower it by fifteen percent, which was they were they were told was allowable, considering the, how what was in the coffers. Um, I I think you're absolutely right in that. Um, what the government is doing, even even if you look what the ESRI came out with during the week, and, and you know they were quite pointed in their criticisms of, of the idea of a giveaway budget. Um, and I, I laugh sometimes when I see the Fine Gael going after Fianna Fáil because. In my view, they should be in coalition because they're almost indistinguishable. And and if it wasn't for the civil war, they would be one party. Mm. Um, I, I mean, it's it's the same old, same old. Um, we, we'll co- come back to Fianna Fáil and that uh, election strategy in, in a moment. I mean, just as, as you know, as a voter, do tax cuts appeal to you uh, as a voter? Because certainly, I mean, the government aren't doing this for no reason. They obviously think the way to win the next election is to put money back into people's pockets. Does, T- does tax cuts do appeal to me, Shane, because I, I think I'm paying a marginal rate of 52% or whatever it is. So tax cuts do appeal to me, obviously, personally. But I am wary of going back into uh, the same policies that got us into the mess where, uh, you know, uh, my mortgage was going into arrears two years ago. So, so do you know what I mean? I, I, they and don't, and they you don't work in the health sector and maybe there's an argument for saying, well, maybe we should spend more money on health rather than cutting tax. Well, apparently we're about to be, if, if we're to believe that the rows, million the rows that are budget. happening, yeah, yeah, up to, up to uh, three quarters of a billion, apparently. Uh, I don't think there's any rows. I think the coffers are so full at the moment, uh, Brendan, that they can afford to give... Uh, Leo Vradker has 600 million quid. Well, <laughs> yes, that is the, the difficulty at the moment, right? We're finding it very difficult, despite our appalling experience, to get away from the notion that this year's revenues are all available for next year's spending. I mean, all the media commentary, including my own, and, and, and I'll admit, you know, is all about how much the government has got this year, yeah. right? And it is therefore assumed that it's got that much to spend next year. And that's Precisely, as I say, uh, what we're supposed to be trying to get away from. Revenues go up and down uh, and do it quite dramatically on a year-to-year basis. Government spending and, and, and tax policies have to take a medium-term view, and they're supposed to, but we don't see much... When I have it, I spend it. When I don't, I don't. Now, the government is, is constantly ridiculing that exactly. Charlie McCreevy's line, exactly. but this smacks of that, yeah. doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, imitation is the sincerest form. That's <laughs> right. I mean, fairness, Charlie McCreevy has, you know... Never been so more intensely imitated or in his entire life, you know. Sort of Michael Newell is sort of an Oliver Callanan version of Charlie McCreary. But isn't that the way it is? I mean, politicians will always spend pro-cyclically, whereas economists will always argue counter-cyclically. And, yeah. and, and, and we have that ever going on, particularly in the run-up to an election. I mean, so. What else are we ever going but to? But there is another interesting thing. I think in Pat Leahy's story that there'll be an effective cap on its incomes over seventy thousand euro. Uh, they won't get any reduction in this USC. Now, that's kind of new, uh, and that changes the nature of the tax system further. 
Uh, and again, there's two views on that. The trouble is that none of this comes with any pre-discussion paper uh, or any uh, set of uh, arguments as to why this is the best way uh, to, to deal with the tax system. It just smacks of, uh, yeah, we'll do that because we've got $750 million to spend next year. What's the best way to do it electorally? I think before General. you think about the what-ifs in the budget, it's, wor- it's worthwhile stepping back to look at the process because what this government told us solemnly at the very beginning is the process will be fundamentally different and the fundamentally different process would lead to fundamentally better outcomes. And they haven't and, achieved and that? They have uh, completely ignored it. And one of the critical pieces of the new processes would be that there will be a much more open and much earlier discussion in the f- broad daylight of the relevant committees of budgetary choices. But year in, year out, in the three years since that has been promised, it simply hasn't happened. If you look at the meetings between successive health ministers each year, and I've done this in advance of the budget, on one occasion, it was only days before the budget, when the then minister, Riley, said he couldn't possibly be discussing with them anything in the budget. But if they wished to wish her on uh, in his hearing, of course, he would kindly remember what they said, which was the full extent of the fundamental reform in the second largest and arguably most contentious area of state spending. That same health committee has year after year approved estimates for the Department of Health that have been completely incredible. And this year, in addition to the £150 that has already been voted by way of supplementary, we're now being told there's a likely figure of another five to £600 going down the same S-Bend, the same toilet, uh, to to follow what went before in a series of sort of budgetary estimates that are incredible in a budgetary process that is unreformed and that, of course, then is leading to effectively the same old outcomes as ever before. There there is going to be a massive supplementary health uh, spend this year though because of the, the changing rules obviously that, that next year they won't be allowed to have a supplementary budget so they'll have to stick to their plan mm-hmm. and obviously the next year's budget being based on this year's budget they want to actually give a big spend over. But the, so, there, so I think Kira, I mean there is a real issue here about the role of accounting officers uh, in the system. The accounting officer attends the relevant committee with their estimates uh, how can an accounting officer uh, stand over estimates that are routinely hundreds of millions out that they know are not credible? Now, there has to be leeway because, of course, events arise. If you're the Secretary General in Social Welfare, you're in charge of demand-led schemes. So if unemployment Richard, the spikes, is, uh, you have to pay the out more. Is the government signed off on the budget last year, knowing when Sorry, the government signed off on commitments that, to reforms that were specific, yeah, yeah, no. that have not been enacted. But they also They're signed off on a, on a health budget that they knew they precisely. couldn't Precisely. And they signed off on processes. And they have done for years. To, yeah, c- to yeah, counteract true. that, and it's the complete lack of implementation okay. of the reform of the process Let's move on that allows health. to carry on to continue. Uh, Brendan, uh, I mean, we often accuse uh, political parties of sort of lacking in radical policies. I mean, there is a genuinely radical policy being talked about in the papers today. Renua uh, is going to launch this policy tomorrow, a flat tax it does exist in some countries in Europe. Just give us a quick uh, sort of uh, user guide to flat tax. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the quite a few of the Eastern European countries have have flat taxes, and the the theory is that um, everybody pays the same tax rate. Uh, in the renewers proposal, we'd all pay tax of twenty three percent, which sounds great. But the other side of it is that all allowances are abolished. 
uh, and that would include things like health insurance and mortgage relief and medical expenses. And Renewer's own figures show that that abolishing those would bring in about a billion a year uh, in extra revenue, or at least, you know, loss of revenue. Um, And the other thing in a really uh, serious flat tax uh, is that um, wealth is taxed at 23%, whether there's income or not, right? So if you have a lot of shares, uh, every year the value of those shares, you would pay 23%. I'm not sure if that's in the new policy because it's only a newspaper story. But what is in the newspaper story uh, is that um, social welfare would also pay the flat tax. Social welfare recipients would pay 23%. So that is radical. And we were just saying earlier, one of the odd things about Ireland compared with other countries is that the squeezed middle, who complain about being squeezed, because they're Irish, and perhaps to their credit, do not want the bottom middle (laughs) uh, to be squeezed. Uh, So you won't, as you might in Britain or the United States or some other countries, get a lot of the middle income people saying, jolly good show, yeah, 23%, those scroungers on social welfare. There actually be a universally hostile reaction, I predict. But however, that's the sort of thing you have to do if you really want a flat tax. And um, I was saying earlier, we don't have any debate. Fair play to renew uh, for at least showing that there are other ways to have an income tax system than the one we've got. Uh, Kira, you were on the programme, I think, uh, with us, the, I think it was the week after Renewa were launched, and I think it was fair to say you weren't overly enamoured by what you saw. I mean, this is a genuinely radical proposal. It is, but I, 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 I'm still not impressed by Renewa, and I sort of think Renewa won't exist in any great shape or form after the election. I don't, I, don't, I mean, they're on polling 2% or something, and I think they're unlikely... Quite the same as the Social Democrats. <laughs> you, you were very keen on them? I wouldn't say very keen on them, but certainly more keen on them. Um, yeah, I think they're a more credible force, truthfully. I think the people involved in it are, are more credible TDs, um, or, or would-be TDs. Look, you know, I, I think very much, as Brendan says, is an interesting proposal. We were discussing before the show how, how exactly that the Irish middle classes do not refer to, to people on social welfare as, you know, on benefits and on welfare and as scroungers or malignant. I, I think possibly we aren't, uh, we don't have a middle class for long enough for the middle classes to really have a sense of their own purpose. And so they, they see themselves very much often in, in the mindset of somebody who, who, you know, only a generation or two ago would have been impoverished themselves. Um we shall see. I, I don't see Renewa, even with a radical policy, making any impact at the polls. That's my mm. personal view. And Jared Hall, would you agree? I, I was there at the foundation of the Progressive Democrats, uh, in, and I can tell you there was an electricity about that that's wholly lacking around Renewa. I saw all four Renewa TDs moving en masse through Leinster House the other day, and you know, decent, honourable people, but no sense of charisma. Mm. Okay. All right. Uh, we'll talk more about the election. We need to take a, a short break. Our, our panel of uh, Keir Kelly, Brendan Keenan, and Jared Howland are staying with us. Back in a moment on the Sunday Show. Welcome back to the Sunday Show. Shane Coleman with you until noon today. We're going through the Sunday papers. Uh, Keir Kelly, Jared Howland, and Brendan Keenan are our guests this morning. Um, let's turn to that lead in the Sunday Independent. Philip Ryan has the story Election Fever as Kenny tells TDs to attack Martin's. Uh, past. Jared Howland, as a, as a one-time Fianna Fáil strategist, if you were in the FG camp, would you be doing the same thing? Or is there a danger about Fine Gael overcooking this one? I, I w- watched some of the, the confidence motion uh, last week and the week before last, and I have to say, I find this government incredibly self-regarding. I know all governments are, to an mm, extent, but I, I, 
I don't ever remember a government with as high of an opinion of themselves as this current one does. Well, certainly Pat Rabbit in this morning's Business Post uh, on a how dare they be so rude to us at RTE uh, rant is uh, <laughs> unintentionally very funny on, on that issue. Uh, but well, I think uh, he made a point about social media dictating. He to did. He, he might have a he point made about a point, that, but he, he all did, media organisations. He, he didn't quite link the two together in, in, a, in a way that, that was convincing. Um, but I, I suppose the, the government does have a bee in its bonnet about the media and the way it's treated in the media. There are specific, for, its, for examples, where I think it, it, it does have a point. But what it forgets is that it benefited richly from roughly the same treatment that was handed out to previous governments when it was in opposition. I remember as, as a minor functionary in government having a hissy fit. You're too much. Uh, with, with a journalist about something, uh, you know, that was written about us when we were in government and I was told very bluntly, you're in government. You know, we don't treat the opposition the same. Uh, so that and, and what about this attacking me and my Michael place? Martin? Is that the right strategy? I would be very careful about that because while people reserve to themselves the prerogative of being vituperatively abusive about their politicians, they do not take kindly to that kind of abuse being dished out in the public conversation. So for a political party to uh, ostensibly engage in that in a public way uh, is, is, is a very two-edged sword, which I would advise them to be very careful about. Yeah, Brendan, a text in from uh, a listener saying, reading today's papers, it appears the upcoming election campaign is going to descend into all-out nastiness. Attempts to embarrass opponents with personal attacks will be the other day. What a farce. Is it any wonder that people are cynical about politicians? It's, it is a it is a dangerous strategy for the government to, to uh, adopt, isn't it? As presented there, it probably is. And, you know, my own view, and it's not worth very much in terms of expertise, but I remember from the past that this has happened before this talk of an early election that the electorate doesn't take kindly it would seem from the past to a government with a solid majority going to the country because it thinks it's going to do better this particular month is it That's a little bit different risk. though well, we don't and we were talking about a couple of months of a difference it's not yeah. like there, it's not like Charlie Hawley going two years into yeah. a yeah. Yeah, and Albert term. Reynolds as well fell, fell, suffered from it. Yeah, I mean, you know, the past is not always a guide to the future. But on, on, the, on the main point, I mean, I think the government is entitled to play and really should play uh, the, the safety card, right? That um, Don't yeah, let the other crowd mess it up. Exactly, exactly. But then, you know, if that's... that's it seems to me a very effective line. So I just wonder why uh, they want to perhaps uh, blunt it further by saying that Michal Martin is the danger. That seems to me, first of all, pretty implausible line, as well as uh, you know what Jared has just said that that it may not play very well. Uh, they really just should say, look. Um, and this is certainly how I will feel as a voter. You can tell opinion pollsters this, that, and t'other. You're going out to elect a government, and what are the choices? And this government uh, has the opportunity to sort of say, well, there's only kind of one choice that you actually know what you're buying, and that's us. Everything else is a pig in a poke. That I could understand. So I'm a bit puzzled as to why they think that it'll be extra effective to say that uh, Michal Martin is some kind of uh, hidden danger to the common wheel. Kira Kelly? I think it's quite interesting that they're going after Fianna Fáil. I, I think that, that they're falling back into old ways and perhaps they don't realise that the electorate has moved on. There's every possibility Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael will be in coalition after the next election. That That is a distinct possibility based on the numbers and the polls. Yeah. And I would wonder why Fine Gael aren't going more after Sinn Féin, who are the obvious antithesis of, of Fine Gael. And, and I wonder, is it just 
the old boys political club that they're used to going after Fianna Fáil as their arch enemy when in fact times have moved on and perhaps they should be looking Maybe their private polls are telling them that Fianna Fáil is the main threat to them winning seats not Sinn Féin and that Sinn Féin's fortunes are slightly that Sinn, Féin, Sinn Féin voters won't transfer to Fine Gael but that Fianna Fáil voters Well it's, it's a choice between exactly they're, yeah. they're not they're never going to pool of voters you see it's not not the electorate doesn't matter in an election the only sub-portion of the electorate that matters is the p- number of people who might conceivably vote for you, which is always a small minority. Yeah. So for Fine Gael in the high 20s, who are the 4 or 5% who might vote for them? Uh, none of those 4 or 5% are for Sinn Féin voters. So none. the hard left, leave, leave them alone? Absolutely not. Here's a question for you, so, experts. Mm. Could, could in, the, in the murky world of politics, from Fine Gael's point of view, uh, they're not really worried about the Labour Party kind of collapsing uh, so you know if Sinn Féin is going to take them out so be it no problem to us Would that, is that possible as a question <laughs> rather than a comment well, from fi- me I would imagine that Fine Gael TDs couldn't care less but for Anna Kenny it's quite different well they, they need Labour to win 13, Gael, 14 seats Fine Gael per se Fine Gael TD does not lead Labour and ideally the Labour TD is behind him goes out before him and pushes him over the line and takes the consequences but for Fine Gael as a party and particularly for Enda Kenny there is an imperative need for Labour to be there in significant numbers or need enough after the next election so he can return to the office of Taoiseach so he can do what no Fine Gael leader has done before which is to return to government. OK, let's, um, let's turn our attentions abroad. A lot of coverage uh, across the papers today, and surprisingly not much coverage during the week on it. An extraordinary story uh, internationally, and that's the, the Russian uh, intervention, Brendan Keane, in, uh, in Syria. Um, some interesting coverage across the, the papers today. Uh, Connor Brady is, is writing about it uh, in the Sunday Times. as a former uh, Assistant uh, Secretary of State in the US. I think James Rubin is his name, also writing about it in the Sunday Times, accusing America and Obama of basically being impotent on the, uh, on the, or impotent on this uh, issue, and they do look impotent, don't they? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the reasons it's taken a few days was that the, the Russian airstrikes on uh, what were, in effect, uh, the, the anti-government forces backed by the United States, that that came as a shock. Um, and the media wasn't expecting that, and probably Washington wasn't expecting it either. Uh, and it appeared to be almost by proxy uh, an attack on the United States and um, they are on the back foot. I did notice though within 48 hours um, there was an announcement that American and Russian military people would would liaise so that they didn't uh, start shooting at each other in Mm. the sky. Uh, So, you know, as always we don't know what's going on. Somewhere in Moscow somebody may have said to Vlad, you know, hang on a minute. (laughs) This is risky, but but again, uh, what you're seeing is 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 first of all in the coverage, you know, that that Obama has been has been wrong footed, but then secondly, uh, that the game may have changed. If if Russia is really going to use lots of military muscle, maybe even boots on the ground, uh, to support Assad. Uh, then um, the nature of the war changes and um, uh, one of the questions you know 
that that if the trouble was the argument between Putin and Obama. One had a certain sympathy with Putin's argument that the only way you can end this war is if Assad wins. Uh, Better the devil you know than the devil you yeah, don't. Yeah, and basically. the old American saying, which, you know, has kind of faded a bit, certainly under Obama, when somebody asked him about supporting this terrible dictator, you know, guy said, well, he may be a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that's the way you got to play it. Maybe. Uh, Kira Kelly, um, I, I know you're not a fan of Vladimir uh, Putin from so, from comments previously on the, uh, on the Friday right hook quite a while ago, which I think got you into a bit of hot water at the time. But I was in hot water with Putin. Ugh, yeah. I can't imagine a worse place to be. <laughs> um, yeah, what... What's, I mean, it does appear that you have this, to look at it simplistically, you have this strong, le- let's leave morality and ethics out of it, you have this strong leader in Russia and this kind of weak leader uh, in the US. I, I think there's a, a, an element of truth to that. Um, do I believe uh, Putin's bona fides that he's going in to fight ISIS and all? No, I think there's an awful lot of reasons why Russia is in Syria. Um, I think he does want to prop up Assad, but he wants to prop up Assad for reasons of, of Russian interest. I think they probably want to make sure that there's a bit of stability in that region so things don't spill over into Chechnya. I think that they also would probably quite like a puppet regime of their own. Everybody else seems to have one in the Middle East. Um, I think this is a form of a proxy war between the, the, the kind of you know imperial superpowers. Um, and I think possibly he wants a, a buffer zone in, in the southern kind of areas of influence of, of, of the old sort of Soviet Union. So I think he, he's in there for his own reasons. But if you look at what's spilling into Europe now, this kind of humanitarian crisis, I'm not sure what else can happen other than stabilising Assad at the moment because... You know, the idea that there is a moderate Syrian uh, rebel group, I mean, if you listen to someone like Robert Fisk, he would say it doesn't exist. It, it, it's not there on the ground. This this is a, 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 a fiction created by, by the US to allow them to do nothing. And what's mm. happened in the vacuum of doing nothing is this incredible, brutal uh, humanitarian crisis where you have Assad who cares nothing for civilian ca- casualties and ISIS who are kind of like barbarians slugging it out to the detriment of all the Syrian people. But it is very hard when we talk about morality. I mean, Obviously, only two days ago, the US were talking about, oh, where are these Russian, um, you know, targets happening and who are they actually killing on the ground? And then, of course, yesterday, uh, the US blow up an MSF hospital in Afghanistan. And, you know, MSF was live tweeting from the scene going, six patients burning to death in ICU. We've told the Americans we're here. They know where we are. We've warned them and they continue to bomb us. So so there is there is nobody there is no, no. good guys at the no. moment in the Middle East. It isn't good guys and bad guys. No one is a good guy at the moment in the Middle East. Jordan, just to come back to the earlier point, uh, the the West, is there a danger that we in the West are left with sort of sort of hand-wringing in, in these kind of situations. I mean, interesting, a lot of people applauded <coughs> Ed Miliband's decision to vote against and to lead a revolt in the House of Commons against mm. airstrikes in, in Syria a couple of years back. Mm. That doesn't look quite so clever now uh, with hindsight. A lot of people revisiting saying, oh, that, that was a mistake. But you have Putin, whose, I think, motives are absolutely open to question. But he doesn't need to worry about public opinion. He gets on and, and acts here in, in, in Britain, in the US and in Ireland, even to a lesser extent. Mm. We're completely hamstrung by public opinion. Our governments are hamstrung by public opinion. Yes, uh, and obviously driving uh, foreign policy through elect- different electoral cycles in different countries in, in the West when any Western position needs to be a coalition of, of, of the willing, uh, t- to use that phrase, uh, is extremely difficult because we live in open democracies with real parliamentary elections. That is both our strength and our weakness. But, I mean, I can remember doing history in what was then the intercert. 
a uh, hundred years ago in the aftermath of World War One, the Ottoman Empire collapsed. These countries, Iraq, Syria, were created, drawn uh, completely uh, arbitrarily lines on the maps that had no cognizance of, of religious, tribal, ethnic reality. Those entities have been fundamentally unstable from the beginning, have only ever been held together by our authoritarian uh, regimes of one sort or another. And we are now 20 years old, fundamentally reaping an endless harrowing whirlwind of the neoconservative analysis that effectively believe that you can export democracy, you can export Western values in, 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 in extraordinary hubris into cultures and conditions where fundamentally the foundations is that, do not Is that a exist. neocon philosophy? I would have it thought is. that's a Western philosophy. I no, think people sorry. on the left would well, believe sorry, that Well, sorry, well, it, it, it is the neoconservative philosophy at the end of, uh, uh, of the 20th century. You could say it is eerily reminiscent of the sort of the white cultural missionary philosophy of the 19th century, uh, but nonetheless, uh, you know, it, it, if you, uh, the former British uh, Labour uh, Foreign Secretary Rob, Robin um, Cook. Cook, I mean, his great speech to the House of Commons at the time of the Iraq War about why we shouldn't do it, about why the policy of containment was gravely imperfect, but the least worst alternative, I think, stands out as a model of of, of the analysis of what went wrong and how difficult it will now ever be again to put it right. I must say on the question of Vladimir Putin, uh, John Burns in the Sunday Times has a delicious piece uh, telling us that former uh, Fianna Fáil Senator John Hannafin is now Vlad's Consul General in Thurlis. Uh, the, the Moscow Embassy in Dublin is famously reticent about coming out and explaining uh, the Kremlin for good reasons, could you imagine being recalled to the Kremlin? Uh, but now that uh, Consul General Hannafin is in situ in Thurlis, maybe he will come on the airwaves explaining the inner workings of the Kremlin. Was it the, the Skibberine Eagle that was keeping an eye on the... Famously, the ominously warned the Tsar we're keeping an eye on here, yes. Okay, well look, we need to keep an eye on the time because it is time for a, a quick break. Our panel will be staying with us more from them in a moment. Take me to church, I worship like a dog at the shrine of your life. I'll tell you my sins and you can sharpen your knife. Yeah, that of course uh, is who's here. Uh, take me to church. And Kira, he's your fellow Wicklow man is um making headlines today. He's taking legal action. He is taking legal action. Um, he's been accused of plagiarism. His, his kind of breakthrough single, Take Me to Church, which was obviously a huge, huge, Massive global hit, hit yeah. and, and he went, went to one number one in, in numerous countries. Um, he was accused, there was a, a thing on German radio, which um, they did what was called a, a, you know, a music masterclass, where they took his song and broke it down and said it was very like the song of, of, of a relatively little-known singer called um, Feist, who's a Canadian singer, who had a song out in 2011 called um, How Come You Never Go There and they said this is the, this is you know the same thing and it's, it's you know that he's ripped her off and stuff um, he is, is, is vociferously denying the fact uh, and in fairness I actually do believe that Hosier is an individual talent I think he's a hugely mm. talented young man um, uh, but anyway he's, he's very much denying that he, he, he has plagiarised anybody it's very hard to, to, to prove that anyone has plagiarised because there is, you know, in the same way people say there's no such thing as an original idea there's no such thing as an original set of chords do you know, you know what I mean mm. but, but well we, we have had cases in the past I mean I think it was George Harrison my, my sweet lord famously I mean he had to pay out quite an amount of money I'm not in any way suggesting Hosier no uh, um, uh, but, but he, he he's and, very and adamant co- that he co-plaintives didn't. with 
with, with MCD, uh, Dermot Desmond, and, and yeah. uh, obviously the co-owner of MCD is is um, Hosier's manager as well. And they are absolutely denying that there is any such thing and they're taking an action. And, and I, truthfully, I hope they succeed because I think Hosier is a huge credit to us all. Yeah. He is a fabulous, talented young man and... and uh, uh, you know, and he's I, from Wicklow. And he's from Wicklow, and I'm not a bit biased at all. Yeah, that story, uh, page three of the Sunday Times, and page three, I think, of the uh, the Business Post as well. Uh, Brendan, I just want to ask you, just very quickly, uh, this Project Eagle story keeps rumbling on, um, causing consternation north and south of the border among a very small group of people. I think the rest of the uh, the public kind of wondering what it's all about. What's what is your your take on it? Well, I mean the critical question is uh, you know, the, the names were read out of the Northern Committee, which included Peter Robinson. Uh, if that is true, and we don't know that it's true, then this is a very big, big story, because he's the First Minister. Yeah, it, it, we have um, to say yeah, absolutely, absolutely no evidence no, absolutely presented no, absolutely by, by the no person evidence. who made the yeah. allegation. Yeah. What there is evidence is that there was seven million in an Isle of Man offshore account, and there was something uh, very funny going on uh, and Nama's behaviour is most peculiar. Uh, not about the deal, but how they've handled it. Uh, it's the old problem of how you handle things afterwards. I see in the papers today that they have said they might appear privately before the Northern Ireland Committee looking into this. It was absolutely intolerable to me. We say that privately, what? That the they won't go here. before a public session before the committee. Oh, privately, sorry, yeah, okay, I'm not in a private yeah, capacity. Yeah, to I, to I me, sorry. it was absolutely intolerable that Nama, backed by Michael Noonan, said they would not appear before a committee of the Northern Ireland Assembly dealing uh, with a very serious public matter. And this nonsense that they're not answerable to the committee. Nobody's asked them to be answerable. You know, they're answerable to Michael Noonan, right? But the idea that they're entitled not to take part in a serious investigation by elected representatives up north is intolerable and meeting privately is not good enough either and until they go publicly I will have the working assumption that NAMA has something to hide even though there's no evidence <laughs> mm. okay. I have to say on, have? The, on the broader political issue it's very insidiously undermining of the north-south institutions which are not accepted uh, in, in heart as a sting from you know, in, in, in theory, in, in the letter uh, by the unionist community and the DUP who try to operate them in a minimalist fashion. And I have no doubt but that this uh, precedent will be quoted back to us uh, subsequently in ways we'll find very uncomfortable. Mm. Lots of coverage uh, in that across the papers. The Business Post, Sunday Times, um, Shane Ross writing about it in Sunday. In, in those, Shane Ross has obviously been very uh, critical uh, of NAMA. Um, Maria Cal also on a lot of the front pages today. She's uh, running for the Shannon. She's pretty much guaranteed uh, to, given that she's the Labour Party uh, candidate, she's pretty much guaranteed to become a senator. Uh, here she is on the Colette Fitzpatrick show uh, just a little earlier this morning here. Well, I um, accepted the nomination from Joan and Alan because I think the Shannon if, you know, the Labour Party supports it, would be a powerful platform mm. in order to raise issues such as rape and abuse and domestic violence, you know, and that is something which I have campaigned passionately on and hopefully, you know, regardless of what happens with the Shannon nomination, I will continue to do that. Uh, Kira, what, what do you make of the story? I- interesting decision by Joan Burton to... to uh, interesting appoint. decision by Joan Burton, interesting decision by Maria Cahill. Um, I think 
in many ways a clever decision by Labour. I, I think, um, you know, we were talking earlier about Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael vying for the same votes. I think Labour and, and Sinn Féin are definite rivals and obviously Maria Cahill, who I think is a very credible um, person and person of integrity, is a thorn in, in Sinn Féin's side. So I think that's very good. I, I read what you were saying about, about running, uh, you know, uh, as, a, as a sort of a... To sort of say, talk about abuse and everything. Yeah, I'm I've, not, I've I'm accepted sh- the Labour nominations, he says, uh, because it's a powerful reminder that victims can rebuild their lives again. And that's I a strong message. That's a very strong message. And, 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 per, and, and in terms of her, her personally, I, I think that that is a kind of a very impressive thing to do. I'm not sure about running on that platform. I, I just wonder. Anyway, I, I just I, I worry a little bit about it all. But um, I think good luck to Maria Kyle. She's a formidable um, and impressive young woman who's overcome, obviously, significant adversity and, and, and faced her detractors, particularly in social media, um, very strongly. Jared, uh, you'd imagine Sinn Féin would be concerned about this development because she is... She, if she's in the Senate, she will be a daily reminder of the pretty woeful way that they they handled this whole this whole issue. Absolutely, uh, and uh, she just her presence uh, there in the picture, if if you will, uh, pers- personalizes, personifies, uh, perhaps more cogently than than any words from any other politician. Uh, this issue that is a, a, a very disturbing one uh, for um, Sinn Fein. Interestingly, Maria Cahill is the last sort of last minute, most surprising, who. Sh- into the, sh- uh, the closing days of, of, of a Shannon since Colm O'Gorman was put into the Shannon by the PDs for a few weeks uh, in advance of the 2007 general election. And, and he uh, became a general election candidate. In Wexford, uh, it didn't work out, to put it mildly. I, I uh, think I think Maria Cahill is saying, I think I'm right in saying she's not going to run the general election. I'd be election. very surprised if, yeah. if she does. Certainly quoted as saying that. But yeah. interestingly, in 2002, when then Taoiseach's nominee, Tom, Senator Tom Fitzgerald, resigned uh, before the 2002 general election, he was not replaced by the government in advance of the 2002 general election. But the numbers game in the Shannon now are quite different because the government's majority yeah, is on life edge. There, yeah. And they need everybody every day ASAP. Uh, just lastly on this, uh, Brendan, I mean, Sinn Féin are going to have a good general election. There is no doubt about that. But is there a slight sense that they have peaked in the polls and that, you know, talk of them winning 20% of the vote, that, that you know, that's probably exaggerated and wider the mark? Yeah, very possibly indeed, because as I said earlier, um, I only pay attention to opinion polls when a general election is imminent. Uh, People very sensibly don't think seriously about stuff like that until it's time to vote. And, uh, you know, there's Sinn Féin's uh, past, but there's also Sinn Féin's present. And if... Uh, having gone through what they've gone, what we've all gone through, the Irish electorate uh, wants stability for the next five years. I think that will that will limit Sinn Féin's gains. Okay, good stuff. Uh, we've got to leave it there. Uh, Kira Kelly, Jared uh, Howland, and Brendan Keenan. Thanks to all three of you for joining us.